Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. Now, I get the urgency of the climate crisis, but just because it's urgent doesn't mean that you can speed up politics beyond what its tolerance is, because as we saw in 2013, if you get it wrong, the blowback is is disastrous. Hello, lovely people of pods. It's Catherine Murphy here, and you're on Australian Politics. And uh, the 47th Parliament has just opened. We are in the first week of the new Parliament. Today on Australian Politics, we're bringing you a panel discussion, as we do regularly, uh, when we have a chat about the latest Guardian Essential poll. Uh, The analysis today is from myself and from Essential Media's Executive Director, Peter Lewis. In this episode, we discuss a whole bunch of stuff, uh, basically how the Labor government is going to navigate the myriad challenges that it faces as it establishes itself as the new government of Australia. There's the imperative of getting climate change legislation through the parliament, including grappling with a push by the Greens for a moratorium on new fossil fuel projects. There's persistent cost of living pressure, which is not going away, not going anywhere. So that's a sort of brew, I guess, where the new government's going to have to manage a whole lot of expectations that Australian voters are bringing to this new regime after the election. This discussion was recorded live on Tuesday by the progressive think tank, the Australia Institute. And as always, it was moderated by the Institute's Deputy Director, Ebony Bennett. Uh, and Eb's going to, I think, ask me the first question. Catherine, first to you, um, some big expectations for this parliament and beginning with climate change and this 43% target legislation. Yes, well, that's how we've kicked off uh, in the 47th parliament, uh, which is sort of going through the ceremonial process of opening today. Uh, But in the lead up to today's opening, we've uh, seen the government telegraphing uh, the legislation that it intends to introduce to the House of Representatives tomorrow. uh, And that legislation gives effect to uh, the 2030 emissions reduction target, which Ebb flagged, that's 43% reduction and also enshrines uh, a pathway to net zero in terms of that framework 
legislation. Uh, I think we sort of we can think about this week in two parts as we've kind of arrived, uh, driven up and arrived uh, at the new 47th Parliament. A lot of the focus has been on this climate change legislation because it is actually very important for a whole bunch of reasons. But I think from tomorrow, uh, we, when the new inflation figures uh, are uh, made public by the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the sort of back end of this week will be economically focused because, uh, you know, the market expectations of the inflation figure is that, you know, the headline annual rate will be north of 6%, which is obviously very high. Uh, and then Jim Chalmers' economic statement to the parliament on Thursday, if you are a total politics junkie and you want to watch it live. Um, None of those here, Catherine, I'm sure. Uh, of course. <laughs> None of us care about politics here. Um, uh, my current understanding on the timing of that is it'll be delivered at 12.30 on uh, Thursday uh, in the House of Representatives. So, uh, yeah, so we've got a, we've got an opening week in two parts. We've got climate and we've got uh, the economy, but, of course, these issues are, are both linked. And in terms of just the expectations of the parliament, right, that we... You know, there is this expectation that Australians voted for change or, well, not an expectation, that's a reality. Australians did vote for change. And then there's a whole lot of expectations that surround change, how quickly you can achieve it, how radical it is, uh, you know, and what the consequences of trying to change the country are. And uh, and I think in some of the ceremonial um, openings today, there's been some interesting signposts along that road Uh in terms of, uh, you know, how, how I guess Australia's new Prime Minister is seeing this opportunity. He gave quite a powerful speech actually early this morning uh, during the Welcome uh, to Country ceremony uh, about not finding yourself on a porch uh, after, after your career in politics is over, regretting the things you didn't do. Uh, his comments in that were, were specifically about the voice to Parliament, which we haven't flagged, but is also very important. Uh, but I think it's it's really interesting because we've got a new government that's arrived that wants to do a bunch of things. There's also a lot of pent-up capacity, though, in the country, I think, among progressive people. We've had a coalition government for nine years. I think there are a lot of progressive people in Australia who just think, God, go at it, get moving, fix all the stuff. Um, you know, and I, I get that a lot in terms of the, I guess, the the tone, the attitude that's out there. So, and that'll be one of the factors is that the new government's going to have to manage is that sort of pent up level of expectation about what it can or should or or would do. Yeah. Uh, Pete, I wanted to come to you next. Before we dive into the slides, um, I've enjoyed your headline from today's Guardian piece. While the ALP searches for its heart and the Greens its brain, perhaps what they both really need is courage. Take us through the thrust of that uh, piece you've written there today, Pete. Oh, uh, look, it's a shameless reference to Wizard of Oz, which was actually to honour the original metaphor, which was the Blues Brothers. So two musical movies. Um I think for most of us who read The Guardian or are part of this podcast, we can um, relate to the um, the country and western um, bar that the Blues Brothers rock into at Kokomo and the barmaid says, yeah, we play both kinds of music, country and western. <laughs> and it feels to me that um, understanding that there is a bit of nuance between the country and western, like we want Labor and the Greens both to succeed, 
We want to see a long-term progressive government. But the interesting thing is we have shit. What the 47th Parliament also does is shift the centre of political gravity from the right to that space between Labor and the Greens. And we're already seeing this play out with climate. So when I try to explain to people the difference between Labor and the Greens, I always go back to the Wizard of Oz and say, well, it's almost like think about, you know, the um, Labor Party's like the tin man who doesn't have a heart, the, the Greens like the straw man that doesn't have the brain. Imagine if they would, could walk together. But just thinking about it through more, I think at this moment it's the opportunity for the Lions' journey to discover their courage that is probably the secret piece out there. And, I, look, I, I, I do have a degree of optimism that there will be a recognition that there needs to be kind of a negotiated settlement outside the electoral cycle. One of my colleague, Tony Douglas, made the observation to me the other day that's really stuck with me, which is Labor and the Greens may be competitors for votes, but they're not opponents for government and they're not enemies. And I think we all get that sitting outside, you know, outside the, the arena, but Catherine will attest to this, the closer you get to the centre of power, the more the tension, the enmity between Labor and the Greens is real because they are competing for seats and they are competing for for legislation. So this was just a bit of a rumination around a couple of cheap metaphors, to be honest with you. But (laughs) it, it does set up the way of looking at this term of government that if if we can see a Labor government that holds the centre ground, the Greens that are pushing it to be more progressive without blowing the whole house up, we've got a decade of progressive government in front of us. Uh, I'm having technological issues here sharing today. My apologies. That's all right. It's all looking very good. We've got the, I don't think we've got the the, the Zoom view, but I'm happy to talk you through it if you want to. Um, yeah, let me try and fix this up. And if you want to just take us through the numbers of the first uh, slide. Yeah. Well, the, the first question we've got in here is federal government performance, just checking in on how people think the government's going. The majority of people on most issues are sitting in the middle. So how's the government managing the COVID outbreak? Very good or quite good, 36, quite poor, very poor, um, 25. Um, On climate change, 33 good, 22, not so good. The one that you're concerned about there is cost of living, um, 23% good, 40 poor or quite poor. Um, It's a real thing, the cost of living prices. Though we've got some interesting graphs that we can go into later. So just early report card um, on most of those things, more positive than negative, but a lot of people just waiting to be convinced. I guess the other data point is, if you remember, there was a big spike in satisfaction with the Prime Minister once he became Prime Minister and people saw a whole lot of things they hadn't seen before he became Prime Minister. Um, if you look at that handling of COVID and, and if you're listening on, on the pod, um, essentialreport.com.au and you can go and have a look at all this. Um, compared, this is the first time we've asked about the federal government's handling of the COVID outbreak since the election. And for those who have been long-term followers of Catherine and my bloviations, we've been following this for a way long time. So just before the election, the federal government, the Morrison government was rated 40 good, 35 bad. The good has dropped four, and obviously COVID is everywhere at the moment. The bad has dropped 10, so it's 36.25 there. Um, that shows where we are in terms of the long-term trend lines. And maybe if we do just do the next one, and then that can open up for a bit of a discussion on climate. And you'll have to squint because 
These are quite detailed questions because we were very conscious to be giving a fair representation of the various positions. So there's, you can dig in deep and squint and read it all, but basically the three propositions we put to people are should Labor lock in the 43% and then there should be a discussion about future targets and um, future energy policy. Um, the second proposition was the Greens should only vote for Labor's policy if, it, if Labor agrees to changes that are closer to the Greens policy. And the third option was, I don't want further action on climate change. And what's really interesting here, 50% say lock it in Albo, 25% are with those that say the Greens should push harder from the start and 25% say don't do it at all. Now, looking at that from a different level, you can say, well, Labor's got double the um, Green support for their proposition. But back to my ruminations on um, that relationship, 75 to 25% want action. The, the, the no case to climate has never been lower, 25% only. So a grand consensus for meaningful action on climate, which is consistent with the story of the election. And then a second and final question there, just to confuse everyone, and then I'll shut up for a while. We then asked only those who, who had earned a response by saying that they do support um, one of those positions, Labor or, or the Greens, whether 43 is enough, and that's pretty much line ball. So that is the tension line over the next period. But I think those numbers all point to, I, I think, a consensus that says get the 43 in there and then let's keep talking about what needs to be done on climate. Um, so. I guess I'm throwing my colours to the mask there as well a bit. Yeah, uh, look, the Australia Institute's got its colours nailed to the mask on climate as well. I think we're definitely part of that uh, climate supermajority that we keep talking about in the parliament. But, Catherine, coming back to you, I was really struck by your comment on insiders. It seemed like the panel just blew past it. But rump of 25% of people that don't want action and going back to Dutton and the captain's call to not back 43%, the huge wipeout that the coalition suffered at the federal election. I mean, you made the point that the coalition, it, it has done the wrong thing on climate change, uh, but I don't see many other people kind of delving into that too much, but how much... Is that going to cause problems for the coalition in terms of um, coalition people kind of flagging crossing the floor and things like that? Yeah, look, certainly uh, I think we, there's a few things we need to pull together in response to that question, I think. Uh, but in terms of the, the where, where the question ended, Ed, which is are we going to see some loops crossing the floor, possibly. Uh, certainly Bridget Archer, the member for Bath in Northern Tasmania, has flagged consistently uh, since we broke the story, I think probably just over a month ago, that she was interested basically in looking to see if she could vote for Labor's proposition. Uh, in the in the Senate, uh, Andrew Bragg, who is a moderate uh, Liberal senator from Sydney, is also reserving his rights at this point to vote in favour of Labor's proposal. And we, we have seen that in the past in, um, well, now I'm now, my God, was it the CPRS debate or was it or was it the clean energy package? Clean energy package. <laughs> yeah, we had some Liberals cross the floor to support that as well. So um, I was very firm on insiders because that is my considered view, uh, having been at this particular rodeo, this one, the climate one. 
and since 2006. Uh, I do have very strong views about who's acted properly and who hasn't. Uh, but the Liberal Party does have a tradition of some people trying to, you know, do something different. Malcolm Turnbull lost his job over it twice. Uh, you know, there are people in the Liberal Party who understand that, uh, you know, taking action commensurate with the scale that the climate crisis is the right thing to do and have made attempts to do that. So with due respect paid, yes, the Liberal Party as a group, as a collective over the last decade has done the wrong thing in relation to this issue and Australia is paying for it. And in terms of, uh, you know, how we fronted up to the new parliament, it seems extraordinary that Peter Dutton, as the new opposition leader, that the lesson he could learn from the 2022 election results where, you know, basically the Liberal Party have lost 10 or more seats uh, because of this issue over two election cycles, that the response to that could be big in, right? But now I just want to, I want to plot a few points along a graph here. And we started in the conversation this week by uh, pointing out that the week started with climate and it'll end with the economy. And these two things overlap. Now, look, as somebody who has long supported, uh, you know, because I, I'm into facts, evidence and science, the necessity of climate action, you know, this has to happen, right? And I'm thrilled to see that in our latest poll, as Pete says, like the constituency for doing nothing on climate is shrinking in Australia. You know, hooray, as far as I'm concerned, hooray for facts, science and evidence, right? But the thing is, uh, if we go back to the economic indicators when we asked voters uh, this week about how the government was performing, the big negative is cost of living, right? That's, that is where the sort of crunch of the war in the Ukraine, supply chain issues associated with the pandemic plus local factors are, you know, are putting people in this crunch. And it's real for you know, a lot of Australians, that hip pocket squeeze is real. We've got rising mortgage rates, so borrowing costs have increased. Everybody who fills up their car knows how expensive petrol is. Uh, you know, we've, we've had floods that will further push up the cost of fresh food. I mean, this, these are real things. So Peter Dutton is making, in my view, a very cynical calculation that cost of living is going to be extremely difficult for the new government to deal with in a substantive sense. You know, we don't live in a centralised, perfectly regulated economy where governments have massive control over the economy. We no longer reside in that economy, although interestingly, and Pete, I'm sure will point this out, a lot of voters in our sample seem to think that the government does have extraordinary power, right? We don't actually live in that world anymore, but anyway, it's interesting that people think we do. So Peter Dutton is very, very clearly setting up an option for himself that if the cost of living stuff really bites, if Labor can't get wages to keep pace with inflation and when inflation's running at 6 and 7%, it's extremely difficult to get wage outcomes to keep pace with inflation. If we're in a rising cycle of rates, what he is, you know, what he has in his mind is I can re-weaponise this as a cost of living issue. Every time there's a price increase about something over the next little bit, I'm going to blame Labor's 43% emissions reduction target. It'll be yeah. bollocks. It's always been bollocks, but that is the room he's leaving for himself. And the bigger point, Catherine, is the next election will not be won over whether or not Labor was ambitious enough on climate. It oh, will be yes. whether 
Dutton can convince enough people who are disengaged with politics but economically vulnerable yes. that that bollocks is actually real. Yes, exactly. So we, we we need to bear this in mind. I know I sound like a constant doomsayer on these issues, but this is just the lived reality of mm. climate politics in this country, right? We have turned a corner. I'm grateful we have because that's what facts and evidence suggest we need to do and we need to do that quickly. But I can see Dutton's calculation. It is as obvious as the nose on his face. On the plus side, I suppose, of this Dutton calculation, we have seen some Liberal Prime Ministers in the past, Liberal leaders in the past, who are weirdly ideological about this stuff, who you know, have very strange views about climate change sort of being a front of new socialism or, or whatever else, right? Peter Dutton is not cut from that cloth. Peter Dutton just sees a simple cost of living scare that he might be able to weaponise. In the event it doesn't catch, in the event it doesn't take hold, I think there is there are signs that his party is moving around him already in terms of a reposition. And Susan Lee, who's the Liberal Party deputy leader in an interview I did with her maybe three weeks ago, basically said, we're starting with opposition to 43%, but this is a new term in government, so basically we'll see what happens. Now, you know, our supermajority suggests that community sentiment has now shifted. If that's true, Dutton's strategy won't work, but I want to just keep people's eyes on that cost of living pressure as an issue. So anyway, there's thus ends my sermon. Yes, uh, but... Extremely well observed, Catherine, and I'm so glad that we get the benefit of your pain over at least a decade or more. Front lines, exactly. Um, Pete, uh, shall we come back to the slides now? If I can make yes. work again, we we shall because it kind of follows through on where Catherine was exactly just now. So we firstly, this is interesting. So at the moment, we ask people regularly to self-nominate whether they feel financially comfortable just managing or feeling the pressure. And as you can see, 41% at the moment saying financially comfortable, um, 38 can manage household bills and 17% feeling the pressure. Now, albeit this is with before interest rates have really gone higher, but it's with high petrol prices, high grocery prices and relatively low wage increases. So I'm not quite sure what to make of that. That skews older, um, people feeling financially comfortable, but not exclusive. Um, so maybe the ground isn't as fertile yet for that economic scare, but it is something to watch. Mm. If you go to the next one, though, this is probably the most concerning slide if you're Labor. Um, how much influence do you think the federal government has on the following? Our debt, um, 75% a lot or fair. Unemployment, 68 combining that a lot and fair. Inflation, I'm going to say 64 because I'm adding up on my feet. Pretty much the same on fuel. Workplace supplies a bit lower and interest rates a bit lower, but there is still this sense that we're being buffeted by a global pandemic, a war in the Ukraine, um, you know, pretty dysfunctional um, systems of government in a lot of the world, um, really broken supply chains, and people are basically still buying the line that the government has some sort of set of um, dials that can, can influence the outcomes. That's kind of, on my reading, bad news for the Labor government because I think part of the challenge is expectation management here. It's to explain what government can do 
but also what they can't do. And that's sort of not what we're used to hearing from um, humble brag um, regimes like the previous one. And just uh, let's finish up. I think this is our last slide on, in particular, uh, inflation. Yeah, so this was just an interesting correlation that Vanessa from our team did that, that's basically saying those who believe the federal government has a lot of influence on inflation are much more likely to give it a poor rating on cost of living. So just um, in terms of sort of two points making a line, so that's where expectation management is really, really important. Yeah, you look in the States, Biden's having exactly the same problem. Um, cost of living is not a political issue. It is not some esoteric Thing that people debate in wine bars or coffee shops, it is people's lives. And if prices start going up and people are struggling, it inevitably has a political consequence if left to its own devices. Mm. Yeah, Catherine, you were talking about kind of the back half of this week is going to end up back with cost of living. I think Pete's really hit the nail on the head there with, I mean, it's very logical that if you think the government has control over those things, if they're not going well, you know, you'll be rating them poorly. Um, But, you know, let's be clear about what the government inherited and and what the Morrison government was dealing with. You know, uh, we do have a lot of hangovers from the pandemic, supply chain problems. Uh, I've seen a lot of commentators want to blame uh, wage increases for inflation, but we know it's really profits that are driving that. And some of those other things are external and, and as Pete mentioned, not things that the government uh, has control over. Picking up Pete's point of that expectation management job, I I hear the Treasurer talk all the time about the inherited debt, but um, are you expecting in this economic statement that, you know, they'll be shooting the blame home to the Morrison government for waste (laughs) spending and other things, or are they trying to project, you know, just that the adults are back in charge and we'll fix it up now? I think a bit of both is the truth. Uh, I think Jim Chalmers, who's who's a very clear political communicator has has been sort of setting up this bad news really since uh, the moment uh, that that the sort of treasury portfolio switched uh, you know from the moment the new government was sworn in and uh, and obviously there is a fine tradition of blaming your opponents for the mess that you inherit after you take office and obviously if we're talking about a genre this will be in that genre. This will be a continuation of that. But obviously, in terms of the budget, they, you know, they're, they're, there are grounds for that. There are, um, Labor's not been in government for nine years, right? I mean, they are actually literally um, inheriting a budget position uh, that they have had very limited control over for the last decade. Uh, but, but I think also Chalmers is pretty keen to, try and project some different conversations here as well. Uh, I mean, obviously, I think we'll see, you know, uh, what's his uh, what's his locution that uh, heaving with deficit, heaving, yeah. with, right? He's, he sort of, he thrashes that and I quite like it as a, as a sort of visual, you know, that he yeah. sort of portrays this as, you know, the budget's heaving definitely <laughs> because of, um, you know, decisions taken by the previous government and a lot of that's waste and rorts and all that sort of stuff. Now, look, there are waste and rorts, that's for sure, but uh, the main reason we're sort of in the position that we are in a budgetary sense is obviously the impact of the pandemic and and we did actually want the previous government to spend to protect lives and livelihoods and there are people around the country who are the beneficiaries of that decision. So, uh, but it's sort of, 
I guess in terms of the complexities of it, if that makes sense, um, the, the, the government, uh, when was that, two weeks ago, uh, thought it might be able to get away with not continuing pandemic leave, for example, and, uh, you know, and that was just a pure budgetary decision, right? The, the more inherited priorities we deal with, the less room we've got fiscally for our priorities, right? Obviously, that was unsustainable for public health reasons and the government shifted. So that's the sort of difficulty Chalmers is going to have to deal with. Everybody in the country wants us to be post-pandemic. We're not. <laughs> Pandemics are expensive uh, from a public health sense if you want half-decent outcomes even if you are starting to wind back some of the mandates and all of that sort of stuff, right? So there's, he's got a lot of pressures and obviously the international factors Australia has next to no control over. So then that brings us back to hip pocket and, and Pete ran you through those percentages, people who are feeling, um, you know, comfortable now and people who are not. Uh, a couple of things were of interest to me in that. I think there's a, there's a slight majority um, in terms of where the percentages sit from memory, although I don't have the figures in, in front of me, that people who either saying at the moment I can pay the bills but nothing extra or I'm feeling financial distress, I think they are in slight majority over the I'm OK mob. Now, we know there is an OK mob in the country. We know uh, we know that. The Reserve Bank has told us that in relation to interest rates, right? People saved during the pandemic. People in secure work in middle-class jobs who could work from home, people saved because they didn't go out much. So people have some, some savings to draw on. And it's also still quite difficult to travel overseas and other places, right? So there, there is a constituency in Australia that's emerged from the pandemic in reasonable shape, right, because of government support because of the circumstances of their professional lives. But, you know, the, the cohort that's, um, there's also a pretty big cohort there who are living hand to mouth and who will be very, very sensitive to increases in interest rates. And also there's a whole bunch of young people who have been yeah. flogged every which way, right? Just to break those stats down, Murph, because you're right. So, Financially comfortable, 41, and then you've got the combination of can manage and under pressure is 46. But it's only 37% of under 34s, while it's 47% of over 55s who classify themselves as financially comfortable. So yeah, yeah. you're right. There's a few little things going on under the surface that um, means you just can't glibly say things are okay, Jack. No, it's sort of, yeah. but, but you understand, sorry, Deb, I'll wrap this up quickly because I am raving, sorry. Um, you, but you understand sort of at that macro economy level why the RBA is saying that there's people with buffers and that's sort of reflected in obviously what, what our voters are, are telling or contributing to the poll this week. There are people in reasonable shape, but there's a, there's a bunch of people in not reasonable shape too. Yeah, it's a good point. Um, before I come to questions from the audience, just a couple of things I wanted people to keep in mind. One is also that in terms of expectation management, the RBA has a pretty blunt tool in terms of interest rate rises to manage uh, inflation. And actually interest rate rises uh, can't do anything to fix some of the problems that we've identified um, in the economy. Uh, veggies being more expensive because of floods and droughts and storms and things. 
interest rate rises won't do anything to cope with that, nor will they help with gas prices rising because 10 years ago we stupidly linked our domestic gas market to the international market and now because of the Russia's war in Ukraine, uh, those prices are going up. Um, interest rates aren't going to magically put the price of oil or gas down, for example, um, and some of the tools that do help will require spending, which now looks more difficult. So things like making childcare more affordable or free, um, some of those measures that directly uh, help lift the cost of living pressures for people, uh, it's just a much more difficult political climate um, to, to work in. I've noticed a couple of people in the chat mention a windfall profits tax. Uh, that was something that Professor Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel laureate economist and former World Bank chief economist mentioned on his tour of Australia recently. He was visiting as a guest of the Australia Institute. And um, Catherine, I'll be interested if you... I know they haven't kind of gone for that now, but it does seem like uh, multinational taxes and reforms in that space does seem to be where Labor feels like there might be a bit of room to move. Uh, I'm not sure if we can sneak a windfall profits tax in there somewhere, but we can live in hope. Um, moving now to the questions from the audience. Um, thank you so much. I think we've got uh, more than 600 people on the line with us today. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, the first question I've got is from John Knox, and he says, could the rewriting of the environmental protection laws, that's the EPBC Act for those playing at home, be the saviour of both Labor and the Greens by encompassing a climate trigger? Catherine, saviour might be a strong word, but do you want to respond to that question? <laughs> I think it's uh, I think it's complicated. Uh, but, no, look, the, uh, the questioner is exactly right to put their finger on that because that is definitely a moving part in these negotiations. If you've been following the whole uh, discussion between the progressive for forces in the parliament ahead of the, the introduction of this bill, you will know that, the, that there are differences between Labor and the Greens, both in uh, ambition in terms of the target and also the Greens want an oil and gas moratorium as well and have injected that into this discussion. The problem the Labor Party has is that it has no electoral mandate for, for such a position. It did not tell voters ahead of the election that's what it intended to do. Uh, so it's quite difficult for them. And, uh, and we've done in previous shows, if you're a regular, you'll know that we've discussed uh, the, the sort of pathway to victory that Labor was able to craft did involve holding its traditional blue-collar territories as well as picking up progressive territory in the city, which is a bit of a preamble, which says Labor has no electoral mandate to come out and say, yeah, let's just stop oil and gas tomorrow, right? That was not that was not put before voters. The Greens certainly did put it before voters, so the Greens have a mandate for that. The Greens have increased their representation and told voters before the election, that's what they wanted. Now we're trying to square this circle in the some of the discussions around climate. So uh, one way that it is possible to do that is uh, because uh, Labor is running a separate process for the environment laws as well as the climate laws, right? Climate, CO2 in the atmosphere, environment is our built, well, our natural heritage and all of that sort of stuff. Those laws have been terrible as well. Labor has telegraphed that it will rewrite those laws. Now, Labor did not uh, tell voters ahead of the last election that it would not introduce a climate trigger, right? The, the, Labor, the Labor Party has some room to move there because 
I don't think any explicit pro promises were made on that one way or another. Um, you know, obviously putting a climate trigger in environmental assessments is not the same thing as a moratorium. Obviously, a moratorium says that's it, you're done, pack up and leave, right? A climate trigger or something equivalent in a legislative sense all that means, if, if you guys aren't following, there may be some people here who aren't following this closely, all that means, a climate trigger just means that when you've got a major development that will be assessed under environmental law, that the impact of that development on the climate is assessed as part of that sort of regulatory process. So, look, I see some room to move there, right? Um, I don't know whether it will end up in Labor supporting a climate trigger or whether Labor will support a variant of that that basically makes the climate impact of new developments explicit, for example. Um, you know, look, there's, there's a way to go with all of that and that's not going to be resolved definitively quickly because mm. the government has committed to a process of consultation about the environment laws, right? Mm. So this one's going to roll a bit, but in terms of that oil, gas, fossil fuels nexus where Labor and the Greens are having trouble coming to terms because of their respective electoral mandates, have a look at the climate trigger or equivalent as that rolls down the road for another 12 or 18 months because it seems to me to be an obvious place where if there's goodwill on both sides and an understanding of people's respective mandates and uh, I think there's some territory where, where we could see, you know, some coming together. I just don't know exactly what that will be yet. It's, it's too soon to say. There, there, it also speaks to the different theories of change between the two political parties. Labor is a party that seeks government. The Greens are a party that seeks change, and they're different. And finding a way of those two operating side by side, you're right, is, is the trick. Um, the idea that Labor would introduce a new tax that wasn't that was outside mandate or introduce new measures on energy that are outside mandate would be disastrous. It would blow the government up. It would create the pressure points for the coalition to make it a one-term government. But there is the opportunity through legislation, like the environment legislation, to it's called the Overton window. So creating the space that the policies that when the situation is right there is a consensus ready to roll. And I just think that is the opportunity. And so there may be, you know, you've got to think about government as a sprint, like not as a sprint, but as a marathon. And if your objective is two or three terms of centre-left government, then what are the markers along the way? Now, I get the urgency of the climate crisis, but just because it's urgent doesn't mean that you can speed up politics beyond what its tolerance is, because as we saw in 2013, if you get it wrong, the blowback is is disastrous. Mm. Um, just adding on to that, uh, I feel like this has got a, a lot of legs, at least not the least because of the Greens mandate that Catherine mentioned and that you referred to. I think um, they've done a very good job at kind of pointing out Sure, we've got all these existing ones, but at some point we've got to talk about why we keep opening new ones. We can't keep making it um, the problem worse, which I think is just a very logical argument that's hard to refute despite the politics. Um, and I, I know it does look like there's no hope of that federally 
in any kind of urgent sense or any immediate sense, but it's not unheard of for governments, uh, state governments at least, to impose moratoriums on fracking. We've had a couple in the past that were have lapsed now or been overturned, but there certainly has been precedent. And I think if we start seeing some of these um, projects go ahead, there's actually very fierce on the ground um, opponents to these types of projects that do come up and change the politics a bit. Uh, Catherine, can I yeah, see I you? I just want to add one thing um, at the risk because obviously there's more questions that I don't want to uh, crowd out more questions. Uh, but just in relation to Ed's point, there are precedents for moratoria. That's absolutely true. Um, but a little bit lost in this, a little bit lost in our conversation today because we're dealing with the mechanics of the parliament is just a very obvious point <laughs> that uh, global capital has already made their minds up mm. about what's happening, about what this transition looks like. There is a short-term uh, set of demands for, for coal, gas, you know, other, other fossil fuels uh, as we sort of ride out the tail end of the fossil fuel economy, right? It's sort of weird. In a market sense, it's going to go up and then it's going to go boom. Right. So regardless of, you know, what governments do or don't do in terms of regulation or, or moratoriums and the like, we already see that it's extremely difficult for some of these fossil fuel projects to get finance, for example, because the banks don't want to lend to them. So we, we, we obviously need to be very attentive to what happens in the parliament, but we also, I don't think people should lose sight of the fact that the bigger, the bigger things happening outside, right? Yeah. And that that bigger thing happening outside is what, you know, caused the Morrison government to shift rhetorically in favour of, of net zero. That's that big thing outside. That's huge what's happening there. So, you know, politics is like a big tanker, slow to turn around. Um, but, but the fact of the matter is, you know, things are escalating in this space quite rapidly because of, uh, you know, because of money, basically, and the bets big money is making. So anyway, I just want to put that little rare bit of optimism out there um, for people is that there's there's a lot of movement mm. in the background. It's not all contingent on what happens in the parliament. Yeah, I mean, great. It's bloody important. Don't get me wrong. Really yeah. important. And this targets bill is seriously important for people who say it's just, oh, it's all symbolism or whatever. Complete bollocks. This is a really, really important statement that this parliament should needs to make, right? But... There's a, there's a lot more going on in this space than just what politicians are doing at this point in time. Yeah. Um, the next question is from Eva Cox, who says, where are the debates and questions on trust and social wellbeing to broaden the debate to more than economic complexities to what is a good society? Uh, a really good point. Um, Pete Lewis, I'll come to you on this one. We've got uh, obviously the Treasurer in on Thursday is going to be doing this economic statement, but he's already flagged that one of the statements will be looking at that idea of well-being in the budget and measuring what matters, that GDP, uh, you know, famously measures nothing that, <laughs> that matters. It's one very specific thing. Thing that's you know um, not really designed to measure the well-being or the the social health of society, um, just a narrow economic indicator. Um, how important do you think that kind of message is going to be for Labor's economic narrative over the next couple of months as we lead up to the budget? Well, not just a message, but in reality, because if you don't measure it, you don't own it, and. 
for too long, we've been very narrow in what we measure. Um, I um, helped Sydney Policy Lab at the Uni of Sydney launch a report yesterday, which was calling for exactly this, a wellbeing um, um, indicator. And also um, people may have seen Nick Bryant's piece in the um, the Herald yesterday, but also that rather than just um, have the budget, the federal budget as the centrepiece of national leadership each year, which is almost like a reconciliation of the housekeeping bills. Where's Australia's version of the State of the Nation report? Where is the piece that sets out where we are taking each other through our government? Um, So I love Eva's question, I think, but it's not just about coming up with another set of technocratic outputs. If you're really judging things like happiness and well-being, how do you measure it? You've got to start talking to people. I think a lot of Andrew Lee's work about reinvigorating civil society and getting communities talking to each other is all part of that mix. So I think there is a really optimistic piece in there. And I do think it starts with asking different questions, but I don't quite know if we've even thought through what those long-term benefits can look like. But it'd be, you know, it'd be a pretty edifying um, process to think it think our way through it. Yeah, Catherine, uh, Jim Chalmers has kind of been on that bandwagon for a long time. He talked to the Australia Institute about it two years ago in 2020, just before the kind of the pandemic hit. You would expect it would be fairly well advanced by the time you get to, you know, a budget statement after so long thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're definitely rolling down the path of this. I think the wellbeing budget's really important, actually, uh, and I for one, uh, you know, really look forward to seeing, you know, how that all kind of spits out of the Treasury um, and spits out of the Cabinet in terms of how they how they structure that. The other thing that's a moving part too and is not certainly not irrelevant to the broader measures that we're talking about, Katie Gallagher, who's the Finance Minister, has signalled that, uh, you know, that Labor will introduce some sort of serious gender budgeting as well. Now, they're not going to be able to turn that around by October, I don't think. I just don't think that's possible, although I think we'll see some sort of a down payment on it. But um, I think this element of the government's agenda is is really important, and that's what I was sort of trying to say a little a little bit earlier, that, you know, Chalmers, as well as sort of, you know, kind of surfing the old genre of, oh, look, 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 what, look what terrible things my opponents have visited upon me and how dreadful is all of this, right? I do think he's actually asking different or trying to, trying to pose different questions, actually, and get answers to different questions. I mean, it's quite difficult, <laughs> quite difficult to do that politically in an environment where inflation could hit 7% and interest rates are rising and people are worried about whether or not lettuce is 10 bucks. But that's that's where they want to get to. And I think it, it's important. I do, I've always thought that this is an important element of their agenda. Yeah. But also if an economy's tanking and you've actually got other indicators as well to guide you, such as, you know, caring for others and, and, and well-being, it actually is a really important counter-narrative because Let's face it, the numbers are going to be brutal over the next couple of years. Well, and also just quickly, Eb, sorry, Dales, just points to the future in the sense that, like, you know, one of the big challenges that we've got in Australia, obviously, is demographic change and the care workforce is absolutely critical to, you know, how how we pass the next few decades in terms of our collective well-being as a society and an economy. So, Again, I think this government is aware of that, that there's a big challenge there to, you know, try and sort of anticipate 
you know, what what the sort of economic and societal needs are in terms of that sort of, you know, demographic transition that's coming at us. That's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to the recording of our webinar Pole Position, which is hosted by the Australia Institute. If you are listening to the podcast, obviously you are if you're here with me, but it's important actually before you start to pull up the slides uh, that are at Essential Media's website and that helps you translate some of the numbers that we whip through during these conversations. This episode of the pod was produced by the lovely Jane Lee and Miles Martignoni is the show's EP. We'll see you next time. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.